Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we are confessing three things. We are confessing that we believe, first of all, that God exists without questioning his existence. He simply exists. Secondly, we are saying that we know God in a personal sense. And finally, perhaps more importantly, we confess that we are in a living relationship of commitment, of trust, of union with that God. You see, the Lord that we confess as Christians is not some far-off, removed deity. Not some tyrant sitting on a throne itching to throw people into hell if they mess up in life. Not some man-made impotent idol, or as I also mentioned this morning, not some impersonal force in the universe a la Star Wars. Rather, when we look at the answer given in question or in answer 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism concerning our confession about God, the central thrust of the answer jumps out at us. And you can see it the way it's written there in answer 26. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is my God and my Father because of Christ his Son. And so behind all the qualifying phrases found in the answer to the question, what do you believe when you say that you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, behind all of the things that go with all of that, the writers of the catechism say, the Father of Jesus is also my Father. Hence, the comfort of the Christian faith. The confession, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is an intensely personal confession. And we can talk about God as our Father because when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray in Matthew 6, Jesus said, this, is how, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. And then so forth. The whole Lord's Prayer follows from that. Jesus gave his disciples what has become known as the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that many of us pray often, and it begins with those two words, Our Father. You know, what's interesting to me about the Lord's Prayer, which all those uh, involved in the doctrine classes discovered this past Wednesday, the Lord's Prayer contains all the things God wants his children to remember and to include in their conversations with him. And that only drives home the point that when you talk about the Lord's Prayer, you're talking about a prayer of a believer. This is really a prayer that can only be prayed with a heart of faith and with a recognition of the reality and the truth of a sovereign living Lord. And if that faith and love and knowledge are not there, then neither ought the words of the Lord's Prayer to be repeated either. If the prayer is said without faith or without a recognition that the Lord is alive, it, it's meaningless. And it may be even somewhat blasphemous to just go ahead and say the prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not to be used as a sort of generic brand prayer or as a sort of religious mantra that will make things right. After all, it does seem to be a very special prayer. On the contrary, 
If we want to use the words of the Lord's Prayer, we ought to do it carefully, since the prayer is loaded with confession about who the Lord is and about what He has done and continues to do in the lives of people and in the world. And if you do not acknowledge the Lord of the Bible as the true God and King of all, then you cannot probably with any integrity say anything about the Lord and about what He has done. So be careful how you use the Lord's Prayer. And remember, it was given to the disciples of the Lord. It wasn't given to the general public. I'm old enough to remember when it was said in public schools, just over the, over the um, intercom system. Every morning we heard the Lord's Prayer, whether we believed it or whether we liked it or not. That was quite irrelevant. It was felt that was important to keep people on the right track. But it was a prayer given to the children of the Heavenly Father. And that's precisely the first thing that Jesus taught in the opening address of the prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. That's where we must begin. And then it is the Father that must continue to be our focus of attention through the prayer to follow. We must begin by being very specific and knowing who it is that we are addressing. And in, in our prayers, we must always remember that we are addressing someone. Prayer is not a murmuring to ourselves. It's not our talking with our soul. It's not a personal pep talk. It's not transcendental meditation nor a kind of yoga exercise designed to get our feelings and deep-seated emotions to get at our feelings and deep-seated emotions. Nor is prayer to be like, like talking to a buddy or, or making a public speech. Rather, in prayer, we address God. And even more specifically, we address our Father in heaven, and we are to do so with childlike awe and trust, says answer 120, and expectantly, says answer 121. So be careful how you pray. Don't be scared to pray, but be careful how you pray. At Diving the Doctrine this past week, we, we had to uh, contrast two prayers, the prayers of the publican and the prayer, or the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up, as you know, you probably know the parable, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these people. And then I made some kind of a statement that he probably said, I'm thankful that I'm not a woman either, that kind of a thing. And meanwhile, the, the publican, the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He couldn't even look up at heaven. Be careful how you pray. Prayer is communicating with the one who created all things and who is working on recreating all things. It is communication with the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who, by grace, has established a covenant relationship with his people. It is communicating with the one who sent the Redeemer to the world to save us from our sin. It's coming into his majestic presence and coming egotistically and saying, boy, I'm thankful that you made me because I'm God's, I'm your gift to the world and I'm sure thankful that I'm not like all those. It doesn't really work. The Catechism states that when we say our Father and then add, in heaven, these words teach us to think of God's heavenly majesty, not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly, 
The one being addressed in prayer is none other than the Lord God himself, the sovereign of the universe, the one who made you and the one who made me, who made everything. But he is more than just God. Many religions have a God of some sort, mighty and everlasting, they say. And the interesting thing is their gods are always out there somewhere, a great spirit in the universe, a God we have to seek to get in touch with through meditation or proper observance of the religious rules and so on. But, and this is what makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world, our God is a God who is known and who wants to be addressed personally and who can be addressed personally. That's because our is a God who came looking for us. He left the glory of heaven and he became like us in every way in the person of Jesus Christ. It's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It's the only faith in which God comes down to us. And now prayer, Christian prayer, is the communication between us and that Father. As children dialogue with their parents, that is, as they have a two-way conversation, so prayer is part of the dialogue that we have with our Father in heaven. It shouldn't be, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. Okay, now you be quiet for a while because now I'm going to talk. Perhaps it ought to be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Prayer is our response to God. It's our communication with the Lord who has spoken to us first in his word, the Bible, and through Jesus Christ. Devotions there, really, when it comes right down to it, must be a two-way conversational, a two-way conversation with a personal God who commands us to call him our Father. And calling him our Father not only impresses upon us a certain reverence, but it also impresses upon us a certain intimacy. And that's what's so cool about the Lord's Prayer. It's put in family terms. Like Jesus addressed God as his Father in the heavenly high priest prayer of, of John 17, he does so six times. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, so he taught his disciples and consequently us that we are to use this form of address for God. He is our Father. But now there comes a question. For there is, this begs, the question that best begs to be asked and answered in light of all this. Jesus Christ was God's Son by nature. After all, He is one of the Trinity, the Godhead, but we certainly are not in the same category. We're not one of the Godhead, we're mere created beings. What gives us the right to address God as Father, even though Jesus said, do so? How can we use such a personal address for the sovereign of the universe? And why would Jesus teach us to use this form of address? And it's very simple, and that's where the gospel comes in. The reason we're allowed to address and even taught to address God as Father is precisely because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so even as we begin our prayer, not only are we to recognize whose presence we are in, but we're also to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, which allows us to pray in the first place. 
And Romans 8 explains why we can use the address Father in our prayers. And it tells us we can do that because we have been adopted as children of the Heavenly Father. He adopted us as sons and as daughters by grace. He made us His through the work of Jesus Christ. When a child on earth is adopted by a family, he or she takes on the name of the family. And even though he or she may not be born of the parents that have taken him in, nonetheless, by virtue of the adoption, all the rights and all the privileges of a natural son or daughter belong now to the adopted one as well. After adoption, the adopted child is considered just as much a member of the family as everyone else. And it's always interesting to me to note that the adopted child is not chosen necessarily because he or she was anything or anyone more special than the next child, nor was the child usually adopted on the basis of any merit, but they are adopted simply because they are there, homeless, helpless, with no place to go, no one really able to look after them. And so it's by pure grace on the part of a couple that a child receives an adoptive father and mother. And if you think about that, that's mind-blowing because that's the way the, basically the way the Bible talks about your and my relationship with the Lord. Putting it in the language of adoption, we are reminded that we were all in an orphanage at one time. Adam and Eve upon their sin in the Garden of Eden, were removed from close fellowship with the Lord. They created a huge rift between the Creator and themselves. And because of sin, we are by nature, like the prodigal son, roaming around, doing our own thing, and not at all wanting in and help, all the while sinking deeper and deeper into our sin and misery. And as each day passes and we're separated from the Lord, we add to our guilt. Those of you who have studied the Catechism will, will hear all this language. We're homeless as sinners, cut off from God. We're in a sad state of affairs because the Bible calls us not merely runaways, but rebels. Not merely straying sons and daughters, but oh, Satan's willing slaves. That's how the Bible describes our condition outside of Christ. It's horrible, it's miserable, it's alienating. But that's the gospel, but God in his grace, that is without us deserving it at all, but because of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to die for us. Miserable, cut off people that we are. He sent his son to die for all who believe so that our relationship could once again be restored. Jesus died so that we could once again call the Lord our Father. And God has promised that all those who accept the sacrifice of Jesus by faith and who call Jesus their Savior will receive the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Sonship, Romans 8:15. And when we have the Spirit, we can truly exclaim, Abba, Father, or the more intimate literal translation, if you will, Daddy, Father. We may address the Lord in such terms because in Christ He is our adopted Father, our Daddy. 
In Christ, because of the victory over sin and the grave, we're all given the full rights and privileges that go with being children of the Heavenly Father. And in Christ, then, we also become heirs of the kingdom. That's the gospel. But you see, calling God Father is the right only of the forgiven sinner. Those who do not recognize the Lord as the true God cannot therefore really pray this prayer, for they're not God's adopted children. And it's interesting, even Jesus, at the height of his suffering for our sins, when he suffered the agonies of hell on the cross, could not call my God, my Father. But instead he called out, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His language in the garden and his language on the cross was very different until the end. Then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, Christ Jesus became sin for us, cursed for us. And at the height of his suffering, it was pure hell because that's where he bore the wrath of God for our sin. There he became, as it were, an orphan for you and for me. There he experienced what it's like to be separated from his Father in heaven, outside of Christ. You see, that's the way it is. Outside of Christ, we are, as it were, in an orphanage. And unless there is repentance, one's going to stay in that orphanage. Unless there is grace, unless God works on us, we're going to stay in that orphanage, eternal separate, eternally separated from the grace of the Heavenly Father. And that, as Christ experienced for us, is pure hell. But through Christ, through Christ, we have been restored to a relationship which the Father, with the Father, which is made clear as we approach him in prayer. We are his children, who with a childlike awe and trust are to approach him, says the Catechism, and we can do so because he is our Father. I don't know how this all strikes you, but it's of incredible comfort to the Christian. No wonder the Catechism's theme is comfort. It's incredible comfort to the Christian because it means that when we pray, we're not approaching some impersonal force in the universe, but we're speaking to a personal God who is our Father by grace, someone who knows our needs, who looks after us, and who continually tells us that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. He looks after us far better than any earthly father can ever do for his children. You know, when we grow up, it's a natural process that we separate ourselves from dependence on our earthly parents. But really, it's quite unnatural for a believer to separate himself from dependence on the Heavenly Father. And that's not because God does not want us to grow up. But whether we are 8 years old or 18 or 50 or 80, He's always greater. And He's always our Father. And we can always, as forgiven sinners, call out to Him, Abba, Daddy, Father. And He's always there for His children. Always there to embrace us, to pick us up, forgive us, and love us, even though we probably have moments in our life when we wonder about that. Says the Catechism, as our fathers do not refuse the things of this life, 
God our Father will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. And then notice also as we begin this prayer, we address our Father in heaven. The our is plural and tells us we're not alone in our prayers nor alone in the family. We have lots of brothers and sisters in the fellowship of believers. We have lots of brothers and sisters in the church. And these are all those throughout the globe who are invited to share and who have partaken of the grace of God in Jesus. So in a communal setting, when it really comes down to it, in a communal setting, it's actually proper, probably improper to pray, I thank you, I ask you, and so on. When you're praying for others, you pray communally. We are individually parts of a body of believers who together have one Father. True prayer does not isolate us, therefore, just the opposite, it restores us to others. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, He is the sovereign Lord, Lord of the universe, much greater than heaven itself. He created all things and owns all things. And that makes the fact that we may call Him our Father in Jesus Christ even more spectacular. It's a miracle of His grace that we may approach the King in such an intimate way, and we can only thankfully accept it and enjoy it. But not only does this truth make our adoption in Jesus more awesome, but it's also of incredible comfort because as the Sovereign, it means that all of heaven, the whole universe, all power, all might, all glory is at his disposal to answer our prayers. God is our Heavenly Father, free from all limitations, inadequacies, and flaws found in earthly parents. There is no better father, no parent more deeply committed to his children's welfare than God. Think of it. He's my father, he's your father, and he's God in heaven. He's God in heaven, and he's our father. It's mind-boggling, but it's true in Christ. Think of these things as you pray your prayers. Amen. Father in heaven, what an amazing thing you have taught us as we begin our prayers. You are God. You are the creator of the universe. You are the creator of all things. You, you could squish us like a bug. And yet you don't. You're our Father. You are God in heaven, and you are our Father. Lord, that's mind-boggling to us. How incredible your grace to the likes of us. How incredible your love in Christ Jesus. How awesome, O oh Lord, that you have adopted us as children 
and heirs. We praise you and we honor you. To you be the glory and the power and the majesty now and forevermore. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.